There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there, welcome to the show and a very, very happy St. Stephen's Day to you. Owen, Ken and Murph here, back in our usual studio. Hi guys. Hello there, Owen. How are you, Owen? I'm good. We've departed the Irish Times second captain's Christmas cabin for another year. But truth be told... Can I tell people the truth, Murph, on this? It's a truth-saying podcast. Go on. We don't actually own the cabin, okay? It's an Airbnb. We were only booked in until Christmas Day, but it was fun while it lasted, and we hope to get it booked next year at a more reasonable price. Uh, Ken, our listeners are intelligent people, right? Right? So are you Savvy? Gonna, are you going to tell them the actual truth? There is no cabin. We weren't in a cabin. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> okay, we'll we'll go with that. Uh, Come on, Ken. We'll, we'll keep this oh my, Christmas fantasy oh alive. Word. We'll keep the Christmas fantasy alive. <laughs> you didn't say this what's, on the what's, what's show. The, what's the truth you were going to tell them? Well, about? I've been fairly certain that our savvy... Latest fake news scandal hits the Olympic David. Not quite, no. But they are savvy to the ways of podcast recording. Yeah. And I'm pretty certain our beloved listeners will be aware that while we are indeed in their ears on this St. Stephen's Day, we may not be physically in studio. Well, it isn't ever happening live. Well, that's true. It's not a radio show, I suppose. So just on this occasion, the time lag might be a little longer than usual. Each of us are spending the day with our loved ones and therefore recorded this pod a few days in advance. So what I would like you to do, Ken, is tell us how you think your Christmas day went down. What did you do? Uh, fictionally, <laughs> what did you do yesterday? Um, I went, I got up. Uh, I what are you going to do yesterday, Ken? <laughs> what are you going to do question yesterday? That what's the, what's the plan? There. Got up, had, had breakfast, mm-hmm. had a shower. Uh, went to. Would you have a shower before breakfast or after? I'll get it out of the way, Ken. Yeah. So you do it first. Yeah. Oh, ho- oh, hold on. I remember that detail in Brian O'Driscoll's book. He's one of those people who, like Alex Ferguson, doesn't understand why people press snooze. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's if you can't understand that, there's no explaining. But uh, his thing is bounding out of bed, and within seconds, he's beneath a power shower. Mm. He, he did leave in. It wasn't just an ordinary shower, <laughs> but he's in, and I thought, well, no, I don't, I don't, I don't do that. I mean, a shower is almost the last thing I do before I leave the house. I mean, I get up, kind put of your clothes around, on, have a shower, <laughs> drink a number yeah, of no, cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, that's that's what I do. I haven't got very far in the day. Get up, breakfast, whatever, mm-hmm. have a shower, go to mass, probably mm-hmm. meet Jerry Flannery. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you meet him at mass most days. Isn't yeah, it? I'm sure most, Jerry. Most I'm sure Jerry Flannery will be there. Uh, in Castle Troy. Mm. Um, I don't know if I'll see him because it's a very busy mass. Uh, after that... They're out the door in Castle Troy, aren't they? Uh, sorry? They're out, out the door in Castle Troy. Literally, Castletroy. literally out the door, mm. which can be advantageous, actually, if you want to stand outside and smoke. <laughs> you wouldn't the... actually smoke. I mean, if well, you're if, setting... if there's no room inside, what are you, you going to well, yeah, do? But then you're still part of the congregation. You can't smoke even well, outside have, the church if mass is going on well, inside. Well, they have speakers uh, outside the church. Well, then you're def- you definitely can't then. Because you, like, you're a You're, you're still part of the mass if there are speakers Jesus outside. doesn't say anything about smoking. Smoking in the temple. There's, n- there's nothing about that. Anyway, uh, after that, I will go and I will visit some relatives. <laughs> he, did, he doesn't mention playing PlayStation either, but I presume you're not doing that as well, I will you? visit some relatives-in-law. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I will 
go back, uh, go back to the house. I will have large amount of food, and then I will lie on my back on the couch, almost certainly fall asleep after drinking a number of glasses of wine, and lie there with my head lolling, like looking like Wayne Rooney. If Wayne Rooney had passed out half an hour after the photographs were taken, uh, that would be me lying there with my head. Hopefully, not snore or you know. You're not, do anything. So you're going to take up a full couch in your in-laws' house on Christmas. Well, well Day. he's already done it. Yeah, sorry, he, you, he's you, done this. You've done that yesterday. And then um, I watch a couple of movies and whatever, and uh, go to bed. I've seen Ken, and we've all seen Ken in that position. I, I remember mm. particularly a long, arduous boat journey over to Hollyhead a number mm. of years ago. No, not even Hollyhead. Worse again, Fishguard. <laughs> Uh, so I I just I don't I look I'm sure the in-laws are comfortable and you're comfortable with them so that's all good it's all good um, it's not a, it's not the prettiest sight is all I'm saying well um, I mean you know I don't know how good looking think the spectacle of you lounging asleep is mm. you know maybe no, but I'm bright as a button at the in-laws Ken I'm just like hey everyone anyone else want a cup of tea maybe you give him another couple of years Ken eh? when you pass out on the couch it's like Michelangelo's Pieta <laughs> you know. But it's not like that. I mean, the McDevitt, time McDevitt basically climbs up a tree and drapes himself over a branch, panda style. That's how McDevitt <laughs> goes to sleep. The time that you referred to on the ferry, that was a number of years ago. I Probably a decade ago. Yeah, I had been up all night. Yeah, you, and you're I, and some it was sort di- of medical emergency. It was difficult for me to. I couldn't get to sleep. I had that anxiety of, oh, I have to get up early to get and make this stupid trip to the ferry. And I couldn't sleep, so I stayed up all night. And I was in a, I was just in an advanced state of exhaustion. And you, you were talking about some kind of a green substance that yeah. seemed to be extruding from my from my pores. <laughs> well, no, I didn't say that this time. I have said that yeah. privately. But go yeah. ahead. But that would not be a, a normal thing. I mean, I wouldn't say that would usually happen. No, I just. I'm, I'm not just worried about it happening. Was. I'm not worried about it happening. More sort of snoring, belching, that type of thing in that area yeah. when you're when you're unconscious in front of the. Is it fair to call somebody a friend even if you've only met them once? Of course. Oh, well, that's all right, yeah. Happy even even if you've never met them, on just friends you haven't met. Oh, great. Well, these friends we have met this year, a couple of new ones. Emmanuel Petit flew into Dublin in March and wowed us in advance of Euro 2016. I think that interview was on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. It was certainly a non-podcast recording day. Uh, so what we ended up doing was just put it out straight away. We're not waiting until Thursday. Petit, this, this shit's too hot. Let's put it out today and let's put a special show together. So we chatted to Patim. We play a, a good chunk of that today. Uh, Ty Furlong, what are you laughing at? <laughs> this shit's too hot. Did you Christmas, just say that? Okay, it's fine. It's, cri- it's one of these Christmas shows, Murph. Yeah, you know, it's true. It's, okay. it's, it's, uh, you know. Roll with it. Roll with it, yeah. Let's just, let's just say stuff. Ty Furlong, um, we're going to play a bit of his star turn at our Gangs All Here show. Happy enough with that link, yeah? That's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, just go straight, no... no no, just, stuff, just, yeah. conti- oh, just right. continue on. But we're going to start with an old friend, an old friend, Jerry Eisenberg, who was one of the contributors to our Muhammad Ali tribute back in June. I had spent a couple of hours with Jerry at his home in Nevada, where we chatted about a lot of stuff, really, but quite a bit about his friendship with the most famous sports person in history. So please enjoy Jerry Eisenberg. Blue corn, won't you bring back all those colors to my dreams. Don't give a damn about the money, being shot, take the title, take it all, and go to jail tomorrow. This chump has got everybody scared. Scared of what? You told him I don't have nothing but a prayer. Well, chump, all I need is a prayer, because if that prayer reached the right man, not only will George Fulman fall, the mountains will fall. Oh, my God, he's won the title back at 32. This rash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. You saw him on television, there was no one more beautiful. You saw him walking down the street, he was a beautiful thing to see. He moved around the ring, he had style and class, he was tall and good-looking. Everything you'd want from a boxer, wrestler, football player. And to be honest with you, he belonged to the arts because he had poem, poetry. He had it all. Sugar man met a false friend on a lonely, dusty road. A specimen, a fighting machine. You know, it was handsome, it was articulate, it was funny, charismatic. And was whooping ass too. It's your father. Yeah. Okay. And Lenny and me again. Eddie Robinson. 
black coach who won more more games than any coach in history at one point, and I was the first white guy on the Grambling University campus. Fraser and Allie and another incarnation when they were both young, and I guess I was too. <laughs> That's. Uh, I'm, I'm, I got my left hand on Ali's jaw in, in my living room. I'm teaching him a lesson. He got a little out of line. <laughs> so it's uh, a okay. short left hook. But yeah, that's yeah. Ali and me. He's looking at my grandchild in a wallet. There, we're in the back seat. In the back seat of a of a limo. Of a limo. And ahead of us is a police car with, with the light going because they picked him up at the airport. And he said, "These folks know I'm not fighting anymore. That cop." And I said, you Tap, tap, tap. They're tapping the bows on the uh, 
I hear this tap, tap, tap. I look, it's the walkers and the canes of the old people who are sitting in the lobby in a semicircle. The old daughters of Miriam, I think the youngest person in the room is probably 80, they're having this convention, you know. And he thought, well, Ali gets up, walks over, I will now perform magic. And I'm saying, oh Christ, the worst musician, the worst magician I've ever seen in my life. And now he gets it, but while this is going on, he, this, someone is tugging on his left arm and he won't look down. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm doing magic. I will now levitate. And I'm saying, oh God, you know, he goes up on his toes, he gets down, he levitates. And as he says that, he finally looks down and the incredible shrinking woman has a hold of his arm. She must have, I don't know what she was at one time, but she's about 3'7 now, 3'7. And she looks at me and says, you know, Muhammad, you're not a bad guy after all, and good looking too. Picks her up, walks to a couch, sits down, puts her on his lap. Come here, come here, come here. Now they all make a semicircle around. Now he says, I gotta fight Ken Norton. He might have said, I'm gonna swim through the Bermuda Triangle. They don't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> Ken Norton. Look at this face. Is this a beautiful face? Well, yeah. Okay. Ken Norton says, my own mama is not going to recognize. Oh, oh, oh. Should I find him? No, no, don't find him. What about pride? What about the old school? What about pride? Well, you got to have some pride. Yes, yes, yes. So they're going back and forth. He said, that's why I came up here. I'm training old school. I'm chopping down trees. You know I dropped that, chopped down 27 trees yesterday. And I'm getting myself in condition for this big, big fight. And he said, and I came up here because all the foxes, you know what foxes are, all the foxes are chasing me around Manhattan and I can't have that. I got to train in solitariness. So, so, uh, I do that. And what's the first thing I, I, happens? I meet Miss Sadie here. God, I'm lost. Miss Sadie, give me a kiss. Well, tap, 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 they went berserk. And Big John said, I think that's enough, Muhammad. And then we go back. But I mean, that's, and none of this stuff was ever recorded because he doesn't do it. I'll tell you how he is. There are a few guys who would have done it, but not the way he did it. I had just become a, a, a single father. My kids had just come to live with me. There was some nervousness. Their mother had told them about all these satanic rituals that I practiced and everything else. And and so, you know, they, they were scared a little bit. Well, I was doing a show that's on the wall there, the last fight, which Foreman and Allie in the jungle and I was doing it in the alley part of the show in Deer Lake. So we're driving to Deer Lake, and my daughter says to me, my daughter is seven at the time, and she said to me, I hope, she, she, you know, she said Muhammad, I hope Muhammad gets his block knocked off. I said, why would you say something like that? I said, do you understand? This is a business. Both of these gentlemen are my friends. I don't care who wins. That's not what my, what my job is. And you should realize and appreciate their abilities. And she said, well, you always said he brags too much. You always said don't brag. I said, you're seven years old. What do you got to brag about? So I said, Robert, I know you're interested in television, which you watch for a while. I talked to my crew. You can go with them and carry stuff and whatever. And she said, she says, well, what am I going to do? I said, well, you go to the kitchen and you speak to Ann Coretta. Tell her you are now the official water girl for the Jerry Eisenberg television crew. <laughs> Get her to give you some bottles of water. You carry them around for whoever needs water. But you keep your mouth shut. I was afraid of what you were going to say. Now it's over. And he's really performed masterfully in the dressing room. He is just superb. And now he says, and we're talking very softly, and he says to me, that's your son over there? Because Robert's helping him pack up. And I said, yeah. He said, they're living you now, aren't they? I said, yeah. He said, what's his name? Because he never met him. I said, it's Robert. He said, wait a minute. Gets up, puts his arm around Robert. He said, Robert, he said, you know, you've gone to live with a great man. You listen to him. He will be a great influence in your life. I could have kissed him. I mean, it was a one, you know, he comes back. Now, he's looking for my daughter. Well, she sees us talking very softly. She's seven. So what does she think? I'm ratting around about what she said in the car, right? She's pulling her molecules into the wall as close as she can get them. And he says, little girl, come up here, little girl. Little girl, come up here. She's pulling back. She says, little girl, I'm talking to you. You with the braids. Come down here right now. And he puts his index finger, points at the wall. He's walking very slowly. Well, he's a big guy, 6'3 or so. And she was at that. She must have been like four foot five. He swoops down and picks her up. And he's holding her over his head. 
She has now lost any knowledge she has of the English language. Is that your daddy? <laughs> Don't you lie to me, little girl. Is that your daddy? <laughs> I told you not to lie. That man can't be your daddy. Look at him. He's ugly. He's an ugly man. You're beautiful. The gypsies wrung you. Come, give me a kiss. We're driving home. Oh, boy, I hope he can win. I said, you're like all the others. The only difference is the age. But he took that time with those kids. They were my kids. And uh, he, he, was, he was quite a guy, really. You, the, I mentioned the training camps there. You, you had this sort of access, which is just yeah. extraordinary. He would tell me things, you know, about, about his life and how he felt about people. And, and another thing, it was always a circus around him. Always a circus. We're in Landover, Maryland. And there's these huge speakers and they, they were like five feet tall, maybe six feet tall. And he's sitting between them talking to me. And the guy went in, I got the tape, I got the tape. And it's the guy who did the musical score for The Greatest. And the music was the only thing that I felt was legitimate in the whole movie. And the chant, Ali Booming. So that's booming. The guy's dancing to show how much he loves this thing. Ali's trying to talk to me about the fight that he had with Jimmy Young and I. And it's like a zoo. People are coming and going. And the phone's ringing. Yeah, he tell him he's got tickets. And he goes, it's, I, I mean, I've never been to him like that. You, you could, that's why those solitary moments I really prized with him. Because he, he was never alone, was never alone. In the middle of all this, he said, you know, I fought Jimmy Young here. I said, yeah, I know you did. He said, I bet you thought I was going to lose that fight. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, because the referee was so horrible. Then he said something, which I do not believe for in one nanosecond, but I do believe that he said it because it made me, for me. He said, you know, I remember the time you once told me, you never worried about me in a fight because you knew I'd always find a way to win. And I thought about that, and I said, i got to find a way. And I said, well, thank you. And I'm into my mind. I said, what bullshit that is. But he tried... He, yeah, he, 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 it's hard for me to explain that it was a strange bond we had because we only had one fight in all the years I've known him and we stopped talking for about two months and then they did that benefit concert for Reuben Hurricane Carter I'm not saying he was guilty, guilty or innocent but I'd like to know where he was the night the Titanic went down and it's a benefit concert, and the lights go out, and everybody's lighting up weed. I said, my God, I can't even send these gloves to the cleaner. I have a contact eye. And Kilroy came upstairs and found me in the mezzanine of Madison Square Garden. and said, why don't you come downstairs? I said, well, why didn't he come up here? He said, come downstairs, please. He said, he really wants to talk to you. He said, why do you think I'm here? He sent me. I said, well, all right. I got down here. Never apologized. And I wasn't going to apologize. I'll tell you what it was about. I mean, it, but never, but said to me, wow, where you been? It's so good to see you. It was like we never had an argument, so I let it, I let it ride away. We had an argument about, about, um, about, um, it, it was in Manila. And in Manila, he had, I don't know, sometimes, sometimes I used to think he was possessed. He took, what's your name, uh, Oh, yeah, he took a, a girlfriend. Over yeah, uh, he took her. I'm trying to remember her name. Oh, wait a minute now. Anyway, he, she was Veronica. Took Veronica there. And, and he told Belinda, who is Kalila, he said, can't come. It's a square business. I can't be distracted. And he's got her with him. And we go. He says to me, you want to go to a party? Oh, sure. He, it's got to be better than the last one. He took me to a party where, where uh, in, in uh, Malaysia, when the Prime Minister of Sabah, which is part of Malaysia, was talking about the wonderful conversions. We just tell these people, if they don't convert to Islam, we're going to kill them. And, and I'm sitting there, and I got an open shirt, and this thing is hanging out, which is a fire. And I said, uh, gee, it's chilly in here. And I started to close my shirt and whatever. I said, he owed me one after that. So now he's in uh, Manila, and she went to the party. It's at Marco's house, his house, the friggin' palace. So we go there. Uh, he also took me to see Mabuto in, in Zaire. But anyway, we go there. And now we're... Uh, you know, Imelda Marcus was Miss Universe, beautiful woman. And, and Veronica was a beautiful girl. And um, they take, obviously someone's going to take a picture of the AP, two beautiful women and their husbands. And Allie, they asked Allie for her name to fill in the captions. 
he tells you it's, it's Belinda. Tells your photographer it's Belinda. Belinda, she, well, you don't think this photograph is going to appear around the world? Belinda sees it and reads the caption in Chicago. She goes off the wall and she flies out there. And, and that's when she karateed a table in his suite and, and then checked out five minutes after she checked in. And, uh, uh, but, but he would do things. I don't know why that, the fight was over that. Is that, that fondness and that respect you have for him, is that why you ultimately stuck up for him when he was stripped of his titles after refusing to go to Vietnam? Was it because he was a friend of yours? No. I would have done it if it was my brother-in-law who I hated. When I was a little kid, he always got a double story from me, and I can't help it. I mean, when you get old, you talk. I was a young kid. Most kids would try to hear the ball game at night, you know, hide their radios. I listened to something called Town Meeting of the Air. There were debates. Very famous people. Alvin Barkley was, later became a candidate to be, well, he was vice president at one point in the United States. But he was a senator from Kentucky at that time. And the subject was the Constitution. And I'm going to quote it directly because this is how I feel about Ali, and I wrote it. The Constitution of the United States is a living document. It is not a dead document. If it were a dead document, we'd put it on a shelf and let it gather dust somewhere else and write a new one. But it's alive, and it's, a, it's the code that we live by. And I wrote a column, that's what started my real trouble. The first column I wrote, and I wrote a million of them, but that one was called uh, With Liberty and Justice. Because that's the phrase, liberty and justice for all. And um, I explained there, I'm doing this because I believe in the Constitution. I, I said, he is a friend of mine. I, that, this makes no bones about that. Everybody knows it. But I would do it for the brother-in-law who I don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is still supposed to be America. And then it all started. We got thousands of letters, because I was syndicated in all of our papers, and we got thousands of letters, and I didn't pay they, I, You know, I, my rule is if you got a letter from me, tear it up, don't send it to me, I don't want to read it. But they began sending boxes of these letters. And um, I think one of them, when well, I, mean, I shifted through them, I think one of them might have agreed with me, and I think the guy wrote something like, I'm sorry for writing this in crayon, but I'm in an institution where they won't give me a sharp pointed pencil. We got, the, our building kept getting evacuated for bomb threats. We got ticking alarm clocks in the mail. We got feces in the mail. I hope it's dog feces. Uh, the, and the postal authorities were in the area. But to me, everybody hated me. Ali never held, held any bitterness. He was amazing to me. I mean, uh, I got a temper. I suppose he has one too, but I only see what happened. Well, it's another story I'm not going to tell, but... Basically, he, he, he's a very even-tempered, mild-going guy who, who did, the, in the end, he would trust him. He would do the right thing in the end. You talked about the fondness you have for him and you always thinking he'll find a way. By the time you fought Larry Holmes, I think you weren't the only one who felt that his career should be finished by then. There was nothing left to prove. I realize the legend that this man has been I would hope they would stop this fight. Savage. This fight should be stopped. Angelo is telling the referee to stop it. Bundini is arguing with him. What do you want to do? The game's over. I'm the G second. All right. I stopped the fight. All right. He would not. He would not give in. Angelo Dundee. He cared about his fighter too much, the way Eddie Futch cared about Joe Frazier too much in 1975 in Manila to let him come out. It is a sad way to see this great man's career end, but it seemed inevitable. I talked about the laws of physiology. So now the scene in ring center, and Larry Holmes is the heavyweight champion of the world. Was that maybe the one time you got emotionally involved? Almost you, too you much. So the the story that night? Yeah. The night before the fight, he comes to my room. And he's staying there and he says, what do you think my chances are? I said, how about slim and none? 
and Slim just left the room. He said, you don't think I can win this fight, do you? I said, I'm not going to lie to you, Jim. I don't think you should be in this fight. No, I don't think you can win it. He rips his shirt off. What do you think now? It was like a ghostly present. He looked exactly like he looked the night he fought Liston. He lost all the weight. He was young. And I said to him, you know, you could have done that at the European Health Spa. And I didn't have no way of knowing. That's what made the fight so awful. They had him on diuretics. He could hardly lift his arms. Not that he would have done much good that night, but that's how bad it was. So we go to the fight, and it's horrible. I mean, it is horrible. And Richard Steele is refereeing it. And I lose it. You know, I like Larry very much. It didn't have to do I really felt for this man's life at that point, really. I don't care what people say, and I've seen the film a couple of times, and they're seeing things I can't see. I never swung to a punch all night long. All night long. And I jump up, I think they stopped it in the ninth, somewhere around there. I jump up like two rounds early, and I yell at Richard Steele. Richard, stop the effing fight. You're going to get this man killed. I look around and realize what I've done. It's the most unprofessional act of my entire career. I sat down and I was so, I was really embarrassed. Fight stops, okay. Sinatra's being Sinatra. He's in the showroom that night, and he's saying, "I just came from the room of a wonderful, of a great man." He wants you to know that he was so alley after the fight. And I was standing in the back of the room. I said, "This bullshit." I walk out, and then I'm gambling a little bit. And I'm walking around, and I just felt. I felt it was so unsatisfying because the guy, if he had any brain, he pissed on his own dignity. Nobody did it for him, all right? Then two things happened, which I, it was the greatest quote I've ever heard about Ali in my life. I walk into the men's room, three o'clock in the morning. There's an old gentleman there, black fellow, handing out towels. Now I say old gentleman. I'm probably older now than he was at the time, but I was 50 then, you know, uh, and he, he was probably in his 70s, and he handed me a towel, and I said, sir, you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no, go ahead. I said, did you bet on this fight? He said, yes, I did. I said, who did you bet on? He looked at me like I, I was a Martian or something. He said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. Man, it showed me how deep that really cut. And then, and then, I find out, I'm talking to the bookmaker at one of the hotels. He said, I never saw a damn thing like this in my life. Do you know that guy moved the line? I said, well, nobody really could. He said, the smart guy money came in, Holmes is going to win. Every cocktail waitress, valet parker, bartender, uh, uh, cleaner-upper, change girl, all of them in this town put their $50 on Ali. And it actually moved, it's the only time in history this time, $50 bets moved the line. There were two hotels, there was one hotel where he was actually 6-5 to five favorite and the others were pick him. The guy said, I never saw it. He said, it was almost, it was, it was almost a shame to take the money. I said, yeah, but you took it, didn't you? He said, of course I took it. But, but it was a night that I will never forget. And, and that guy saying that to me, all the things I thought for all these years, that really summed it up. I bet on the man who gave me dignity. He didn't say, I knew he would win, or I hoped he would. He didn't say anything about winning or losing. He said, I bet on the man who gave me dignity. That's really the way to remember Muhammad Ali. Jeez, I love that voice. Jerry Eisenberg remembering Muhammad Ali and the show after Ali died in June. I guess if you want to showcase Ali's impact on people and Jerry's ability to tell a story, that last one wasn't bad. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this, although I don't know if it's the right, if it's the way to bet. To be fair, I wouldn't bet that way myself. I'm not, you know, betting on the person who gave you dignity. No, you I mean, would bet I, on the person who will give you financial dignity by making you some money. I'm not. I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say. I mean, betting to me is about trying to win the bet. I'm not. It's not really. You you could write Muhammad Ali a letter. And tell him how much, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's true. dignity I, you, he had given you. Know, it's, you. Not, it's not a form of self-expression, you know, where I say, that, you know, what would I... Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm a proper gambler who rationally plots out the bets with, you know, and, and 
removes all of the sort of subjective biases. I mean, I'm I'm a, I'm a stupid gambler. I'm an irrational, terrible gambler. But I would not bet for that particular sentimental reason. I would bet for all kinds of delusional reasons, all kinds of fallacious, fallacious thinking yeah. going to going to the picks that I make. But dignity, I'm happy to say, has never been one of them. One more clip, quick one here from that Ali tribute. This is his old broadcasting sparring partner, Howard Cassell. We played this one from, from the vaults. This was Cassell talking many years back on Ali's 50th birthday. And now, it's time to say to you, Mohammed, God bless you and happy birthday to you. 50 years old. I never thought that could happen. Not to you. But it has. And you know something? You are. Exactly who you said you are. You never waver. You are free to be who you want to be. I love you. Howard Cassell there, the great American broadcaster whose story was so intertwined with Ali. It's the same with Eisenberg, in fact. You know, Eisenberg's been working since 1950 as a journalist. He's been to every Super Bowl, a million other big events, but so much of his life and career is bound up with one person. I guess that's the way it goes when you end up... In the orbit. In the orbit of Muhammad Ali, as we heard a lot about this year. Now, back in March, let's go back a little further. We had the pleasure of meeting up with Emmanuel Petit, World Cup winner with France in 1998. That team was seen as a symbol of a new and united country uh, back in the late 90s, uh, which was, needless to say, turned out to be a little more than a little bit optimistic, but that was the kind of thought at the time. They were an interesting side, anyway, with at least one or two pretty deep thinkers. Certainly Lillian Thuram had a big interest in things that went on in the world outside football. It turns out Petit had a bit about him as well. So here's Manuel Petit talking to myself and Ken in the build-up to Euro 2016, starting with his recolle- recollections of the wider significance of that World Cup winning team that he was involved in back in 1998. Because of what happened that time, I thought we could have a big impact on the politics. And uh, when I see 17 years after that what's happening actually in my country, I'm quite scared, yeah. Is it expecting too much of a football team to have that sort of an impact? Because the same questions, the same hopes are being attached in a different way to the current France team after the Paris attacks last year and the situation that you talk about. Is it expecting too much for a football team to... Be an example. Yeah, to to be an example, to be anything more than just a football team. It's funny you ask me this question because somebody asked me the same question yesterday in France. I said um, that sometimes I'm a little bit uh, tired of trying to be uh, the perfect person all the time because I'm a sportman. I know that the sport is a, it's a life school, you know, but uh, we are not uh, responsible for everything's happening into the society. We are perfectible, perfectible sometimes. We are just human beings. We can do mistakes. The reason why there is uh, such a big uh, uh, bad uh, image and publicity surrounding the, on the French national team actually is because of what happened since the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. Mm. Starting from Naisna, then the 2012, the European tournament as well, the behavior of some players. Then it happened again, and then uh, came Deschamps, tried to change many things, but once again, Benzema, six steps with uh, Valbuena. So it's like... We feel shame since uh, four or five years now with the national team. It's completely the opposite for, from what the French people used to live with uh, our generation and after that as well when they, fin- they went into the World Cup final in 2006. It's like um, there is a, a big disillusion um, and sometimes as well uh, uh, some anger from French people. Uh, about some players representing France into the national team uh, because of their background, because of probably the signification of their name. Uh, it's a reality where we have to face it and uh, I think uh, we need to stick all together as a country. I remember when I went to, uh, I was in France uh, in 2004. Ireland played France in like Paris. It was yeah. like a nil-nil draw. Um, I remember... Uh, you know, a waiter in the restaurant before the... We were on our way to the game that day. And the waiter was like, you know, this isn't France. And, and I was like, you know, what are you talking about? And he goes, this is just a team of blacks. 
This was this was what the writer said. This is 2004. I thought this was six years after this multiracial French team had had been so successful. But this is still what his attitude is. And you see, you seem to be saying that that's still still the same. Yeah. Still the same. Uh, I, uh, for me, I'm not surprised. Uh, we know before we won the World Cup, we received so much criticism because of that as well. Mm. A lot of politics. Uh, uh, a lot of people as well. They were seeing that publicly, you know, they were saying uh, this is not a, a, a French national team. There is too many blacks and Arabs into this team. I didn't, didn't know that uh, to be a French guy, you, you need to be from generation and generation here. And even those people, because we are not sure 100% they are 100% French blood. Mm. You know what I mean? So if there is one thing I've learned in sport, there is no racism in sport. We don't care if the, your teammate is black or yellow whatsoever. We don't care. Honestly, we never cared about that. Hmm. Uh, apparently, there is some people who care about that. And uh, apparently, as well, there is some people in football who care about that as well. Yeah. I mean, this, this Euro comes... Uh, I mean, everybody knows what's happened in France in the, in the last year. Um, and I, you, you almost get the sense that what happened in Paris last year was so bad mm-hmm. that it seemed like almost do we have to have this tournament now? You know, do you, do you get the sense that that people are that that maybe the tournament can can help with that with that sort of move? For many reasons, you're right when you say that. Uh, first of all, of course, obviously uh, for the security. Um, I know that uh, the French government has has increased fifteen percent of its own budget. You know, for the security is coming soon. I'm not sure how they can do that because um, it's not a question of money, it's a question of man. Our police uh, is so tired actually since a year. They have been so, uh, they have been on the pitch every day, single day. They, are, they, they can't sleep anymore. They are living under such pressure from the politics and from, from the, the French people as well. They are doing a great job, actually. And uh, when I look at them all the time, because every time I wake up and I, and I bring my, my, my daughter to school, I always cross the army all the time, the police, they are here in the street on the 24 hours per day, you know. And uh, that's been like this for months and months. So I think people don't realize what they are doing, actually. They are the sacrifices they are making every single day because apparently we are in war, but against who? It's invos- invisible. Apparently uh, we are fighting against a, a big terrorist attack all the time, but we have to understand that those persons who give their lives for our security, we need sometimes to show them more respect as well because uh, that's why I said when I look at the FA Cup in England, you know, the protocol before the game with all the, the representatives of the security of the nations. Uh, I would like that to be uh, as well uh, in France. And uh, when I look at the security, actually, when I look at uh, what is in French mind, we have so many troubles, actually, in terms of security, in terms of um, uh, economically, socially, people are... Um, coming down, uh, walking down the street every single day, every single week now, complaining about uh, the money, about uh, the jobs, about every single thing. It's, it's been since I'm alive, since I'm the, I, I understand the situation, economically, politically, socially. For me, this is the most difficult time I have lived in France. And we have to prepare European tournament, Roland Garros, Tour de France, uh, so many important uh, sport events. That means a lot of security, more money spent from the, the French people on taxes, you know. When so this is why I think uh, when you look at the whole situation, it's you, you, we must show more respect for police, but we must as well respect what the majority said all the time about uh, using public money. When you say uh, that, in, <clears throat> that in 1998 you're, you, you and other players on the team were kind of aware 
of how the team was seen as a symbol. Uh, do you think that the players in this France team now, going into this tournament, will also be aware that this may be... I mean, what do you think is, you know... Do you think that someone like Paul Pogba feels like um, a greater sense of responsibility or pressure? <laughs> no, maybe not? I don't want to be rude with the new generation, but... I don't want to say that other percent of the new play, the, 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 the players of this generation are the same because that's not true. But there is a big majority in these players uh, everywhere in the world. They only care about themselves, about their own image. They are more focused about uh, how many followers they have on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat or whatsoever instead of are we going to win the next game? Are we going to make the, our fans proud? Are we going to pay back the money we received all the time? It's like they are more focused on the haircut, on the tattoos, on whatsoever. It's, I know, so in my time, it was quite the same with some players. Did but you not get? Uh, did you? Did people not say, "Oh, Petit, look at his hair. Who does he think he is?" Back in, you know, back in the day. I've got long hair. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Maybe one day I will do tattoos as well. But, you know, before showing up all the time, just prove your value. Not on six months, on years and years. If you pretend to be the star you think you are, then you have to prove it all the time. Not, you know, on the social networks, but on the pitch. Surely, though, given the direct proximity of the players to the tragedy of Paris uh, I mean, they were playing the match at night. Uh, the relatives of, of one of the players was was uh, a cousin of one of the players was killed. Surely they would be aware of themselves as being able to play a role a bit above the football. The, ha, ha, you don't get the sense that even this new generation feels more of a responsibility since the Paris attacks than they would have beforehand. I hope so. I hope you're right. I hope, but um, those the majority of the players you know they live abroad. They don't live in France, so they they've read uh, what happened, you know, through newspapers on TVs, and I'm pretty sure they've been shocked about it. But uh, they don't live the same thing we are living actually, especially in Paris. And uh, as I said, there's still very good players with a very good personality, with a very good heart, but. For me, it's a minority now. Playing for the national team, just uh, it's just a question of a question, it's just a question of image now. Mm. For the, mass, the vast majority now, they, they take this just because they know that uh, that will bring sponsors, that will bring a good image for them. But uh, as I said, playing for the national team is not football. Well, could that change if if they bring in? Zidane Zidane walks in, you go in there, Turam walks in before the tournament starts and explains to the players how much this should mean to them. Do you think that could have, would you be willing to do that? Maybe I would shock uh, some people, you know, but uh, do they know us? (laughs) (laughs) Who's this guy? They might say. Interesting about the history of their own country. I'm not saying that about the politics, social, or economics because I know the, the history of my country. For centuries, I know the story, the story of my country in sports, especially in football. I can name you the men's, you know, in 1930, you know. But do they know what uh, the old players, former players, have done before them? Ask just a simple question. They can give me the answer. You have actually asked them this question? Have you no, talked to these guys? Ask them the question. Oh, if, if I was to ask. Yeah. Is, it, is it though kind of just the way things are now? I mean, for instance, you know, Arsenal are often being criticised now for, oh, you know, putting up selfies of themselves after winning a game or the dressing room picture in every game. I, I mean, do you, I don't know how many pictures you have of you and Vieira in the, in the dressing room back in the day. Maybe you've got a couple. 
But if you'd had, you know, Twitter and Snapchat or whatever, I'm sure you would have been there every day. No. People would have said you were obsessed no. with, with no. no. Because I don't have Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatsoever. But, but if you were, you know, if you were 27, 28 and a football team. Yeah. I understand. Um, you, you people are passionate about the social networks. I totally understand that. Mm. And uh, to be honest with you, I think it's in some way it's a very good thing. But my life, I want it private. So uh, I don't have to go on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat to, to tell what I'm doing every single so day. Why, why do you think they'll do it? Why do you think they'll do that now? Well, you know why. Well, not, not really. It's, it's difficult for me to understand. Don't be naive. <laughs> Honestly, now you can monetize the numbers of followers you have on Facebook. Right. I'll take you an example. Cristiano Ronaldo on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat, I think, I think he, he totalized... 200 million fans, followers, or across the world. Mm. The most, the five most successful sportsmen in U.S. total has the same amount of followers. Right. So Cristiano alone by himself does it better. And you can monetize this. For example, if I am a big brand, international brand, mm. and I want to use Cristiano Ronaldo image, I'm not going to call his agent. I'm not going to say we're going to do a TV spots for two years or radio or newspapers, whatever. And that will cost this, kind, this amount of, of money. I will ask Cristiano Ronaldo, can you wear my shoes and take a picture and post it on your social medias? Mm -hmm. You're going to touch 200 million people in one single minute. Mm. So it's going to cost me f at least four or five times less money than if I do, I do it on TV. And I will touch five more people, you know, yeah. uh, through your social media than instead of on television. You think it's all about money? Now it's because it's becoming a big interest from uh, famous people because they can monetize this all the time. Manuel Petit there, I hope you enjoyed that one. I think uh, a lot of people did at the time, certainly when he popped over to Dublin in March. He seems to be very pessimistic, Ken, about the current bunch and how well they were going to represent the the country. Mm. Uh, they did a pretty good job though, didn't they? They did. I mean, I don't know what they're supposed to do bar playing football quite well and behaving themselves and, you know, not going on strike as French teams have done in the past. I think they did They did well. I mean, ultimately in the final, they, they became a bit overwhelmed by um, the responsibility of having to win this game against a team, Portugal, that they were clearly better than, but just didn't quite have the confidence that they could put Portugal away and they, they ran out of courage in the end but you know it was very difficult to care about any of that because it was one of the smallest things I mean it's been more difficult I think, to care about sport this year than I've ever found it before in my life mm. it's just it's very you know there's so many other things I mean even after the Euros I remember talking after the Euros um, and thinking that the Thing the, the the best thing about this European Championships is that there wasn't, you know, a big terrorist attack. That was sort of the thing that was the, that was that everyone feared. I mean, the games, the stadiums were like fortresses. You know, you have these policemen and soldiers standing around with machine guns, scarecrows. You know, to try and ward off this vague this sort of danger that everybody feels, and. You know, it was just a, a relief. I mean, I don't think anyone in France cared that they lost the final. It was like, oh, thank God, that thing is over and, we, and you know, nothing happened. And then a couple of days later, there was this uh, massacre in Nice. Mm. And I, I don't know, there's never been a football tournament that had less of a, you know, people talk about, oh, wasn't that great? And, you know, the London Olympics say, wasn't it like, you know, we spend all that money on it and sure we'll be paying it back forever. But wasn't it amazing? You know, wasn't it great that we could sort of look back and there was those two and a half weeks, everyone was just, it was, we had such a great time. There was just none of that, really, with the Euro 2016. It just didn't, in, in the house country anyway. Well, it was yeah. the shortest, it was the shortest uh, tournament after Glow yeah. of all time. Well, no, that's true. And you have much wider experience than me of being at these major football tournaments for a length of time. I was there for a couple of days, but we were, myself and Murph were there for the France game. And it was interesting being there. I'd never been at a game 
where the team I'm sporting is playing the host nation. Mm. And you're at the centre of all that and the sort of rabid flag waving. And the atmosphere was pretty spectacular, I yeah, thought. Amazing, yeah. Unfortunately, it got more, it got louder and louder as the second half progressed. And we Greece, we just kept scoring. <laughs> part of the season. Running through the middle of our defence. Uh, uh, the score would be chopped a, a little bit. So I did, get, I did get the sense that the country was getting behind the team. Yeah, I think so. But, I mean, but you just don't think it's the kind of, they had bigger things to worry about than worry than being too upset that they lost the final. Nobody after the final. The next cared. morning cared too much. The Portuguese were delighted. Yeah. Um, a lot of those Portuguese people at the final were, you know, from the they lived in France. There was lots of there's a lot of Portuguese who live in Paris. There's lots of there's Portuguese immigrant communities, you know, all over kind of continental Europe, and there's a lot of them in Paris. And they were delighted because Portugal is more of a football country than France is as well. And they've kind of seen their team go close many, many times. Never win anything. Whereas France have actually won the World Cup, won the European Championship before. Um, I mean, the last time that that was happening, um, people thought it was actually really important. and uh, Or people thought, you know, this can... Look, th- this team is, a, is a, a, a functional model of multiculturalism. This team is an example of what can happen. Uh, when everybody, you know, believes in this sort of multi-ethnic, multi-racial idea. And it was, and it is, um, and it doesn't matter. Okay, the great thing about major tournaments is the feverish debate that gets sparked around this wonderful and not at all falling apart of the seems continent of ours. And so it was, Ken Early, in an appearance on BBC Radio Ulster, came face-to-face over phone lines with Wales' number one celebrity fan, Catatonia's Keris Matthews. Well, Ken Early, what do you think? Can the underdog triumph tonight? Well, well you know, Wales. everyone obviously, you know, the press love a little bit of Brian. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm sure it was just a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding. Uh, Keris went on for a couple of minutes there, uh, talking passionately and, and knowledgeably on all things Welsh football. But, yeah, that, that won't happen again, will it? Keris, we actually have a football writer on. We hardly need him with your expert analysis <laughs> of the team. But let me bring Ken in here. Uh, so, Ken, uh, uh, underdog... Could be the day of the underdog, the night of the underdog again. I don't it's know. Keris, 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 Keris. I want to bring Ken Early in here, know, please. Cool it, cool it. We have quite similar sounding names in a way, I suppose. Good save, Ken. You're trying to Good save the situation. I mean, you don't want to. You don't want Keris Matthews to be made a fool of there. Well, no, Keris, Keris and Ken are kind of similar. In, I mean, the, the end of the word is different, but the beginning and middle of the world is word is. Mm. Similar, yeah. right? I mean, he did. The presenter in question did say, "We have a football journalist Noel, on the line." Noel Thompson. Uh, Noel did make that quite. He clear was very authoritative. Very authoritative. So I'm sure Karis won't put in on Ken again no, after that. No, Portugal are missing, you know, a player as well. Mm. Willie Carvalho. So, so Ken, some, some. Ken, been the English press. And back to St Stephen's Day. <laughs> now you've had time to reflect on that. Yeah. There was no Karis? need. There was no need to have me on in that item, really. No, it's just. Karis. I mean, Karis Matthews. I mean, if you're a radio listener in Belfast or wherever, and you hear like Karis Matthews and Ken Early are on the phone to talk mm. about Wales, who are you realistically more interested in listening to? In well, I'm going to say 999 out of a thousand cases, there was no need for, to have me there for the point zero one percent. The year was capped off by Ireland's never-to-be-forgotten win over the All Blacks in Chicago, and it never will be forgotten, Murph. I have a feeling that within maybe a decade, this game might not be able to breathe anymore amidst the teary-eyed nostalgia. If every person who claimed they were in Soldier Field was actually in Soldier Field, and so on. But for now, we can still wallow in it, it, right? It's only a few weeks. Of course. Okay, yeah. You were there, weren't you? Yeah, I was with you. We were all there. Yeah, we were all there. We were halfway halfway line seats. So we're where are we? Yeah, one of our heroes in that two game series was Ty Furlong. We knew Ty was a hell of a rugby player based on his exploits, particularly over the last couple of months. What we didn't know was how sound a lad he was until he came along to the Liberty Hall Theatre to chat to us at our seven hundred and fiftieth show. Here he is talking about busting through a wall of All Blacks in the return game in Dublin. Yeah, I came up in the the video review and. Joe Schmidt said, oh, here comes WWF. <laughs> <laughs> so not even WWE, WRF, so we're going back yeah. to eight years. Yeah, 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 that'll be my year now yeah, watching yeah. the rest. And uh, so, of course, the lads jumped on the bandwagon and started like Rikishi, the big fat small wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, uh, oh, as you may or may not know, this has been par for the course for Tig ever since his uh, sporting career began. Because here's some action from the Wexford Under 40B County Final between Horswood and St Martins, and I think you'll see that Ryle Nugent's commentary actually fits the bill quite nicely for this clip as well. In midfield, it's Tig Furlock. We're still going, battering all black jerseys out of the way. So uh, there you go. I mean, what I love about this is the cheeky little dig that the opposition yeah. number three tries to throw your uh, throw your. A bit of a cheap shot there. Uh, now I have heard that you were twelve in that clip, it, it playing under fourteen. Yeah, I was twelve. Um, I always struggled with my weight as a young fella. Uh, <laughs> so I had this weird thing where I was always the same weight as my age. <laughs> so. So you imagine, uh, until I was about 19 or 20, I hit 20 stone, I was 20 once, and yeah, yeah. I kind of left that there, yeah, so it yeah. wasn't healthy to continue. <laughs> but so, I was 12 there, so as you can imagine, the communion, the confirmation photos <laughs> at home are quite pudgy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was... Um, I, I actually, I've heard of a guy who uh, lives in Moycullen in, in County Gold. He's, si- he's over 60 years old. His nickname is still Stone Baby, because he was a stone weight when he was born. <laughs> Are you asking Tyke Furlong what weight he was when he was no, born? No, 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 he doesn't need to share that. I just thought everyone needed to hear about Stone Baby, that's all. By the way, good skills As, as there. you were, back to our... We're, uh, we're focusing on the size, incredible skills. Most inter-county footballers can't execute that tackle correctly. I know, I know. Furlong's doing it brilliantly. Uh, you grew up on a farm, as you mentioned. You, U.S. Murph mentioned your uncles who were fishermen. That's, is that where the natural physical strength comes from? Yeah, um, my mother comes from this tiny island off Bantry Bay um, in West Cork called Whitty Island. I mean, this place is barren. Um, it's three miles wide by one mile uh, long. And, um, I mean, there's only about 20 people live on this island. So um, my uncles are all huge men, hardy men down there. And I think that's where I got my size from. And um, very hardy fishermen. And one of my uncles is the ferryman, ferrying out to the island. Once he gets you there, he has you in the trap. <laughs> he owns the pub on the island. So yeah. <laughs> any, any penny you spend on Whitty Island is good yeah. to your uncle, basically. Yeah. Yeah. The, if you want to rent a bike, he has the bikes now. <laughs> if you even want to stay overnight, he has the holiday homes as well. So. The wonderful Tig Furlong there being super sound at the Gangs All Here show a little while back, a few weeks back. Although we did have a small amount of blowback on that interview, Murph. There was a mm. bit of uh, controversy swirling afterwards, right? Well, Tig Furlong got himself involved in a in a, a war of words, uh, as James McCarthy might say, with his uncles on Woody Island, uh, because they were very quick to tweet in after we released the show to say that uh, they think the tag meant oasis, not barren. He described Woody Island <laughs> as a barren hellhole. Uh, no, he may not have <laughs> he used did, the word he hellhole. He didn't say hellhole. Come on. I think he meant oasis, not barren. Great job for Woody, though, says the at Woody Island uh, official, reasonably official, uh, Twitter uh, Twitter account. Uh, great interview, Tag. Very proud of you here on Baron Witty with a <laughs> photograph of a not at all Baron looking uh, delightful uh, green idyll uh, there in Witty Island. Of course, Tag was uh, telling us about all of his aunties or all of his uncles, fine big fishermen uh, who will look after you whenever uh, whenever you get to. Well, they'd flog you. One in particular would basically flog you. Anything uh, going on the island? Well, I asked him. Uh, I asked him actually. Uh, the people at Witty. Yeah. Hey, I'm looking for a ferryman pub, bike rental, and hotel room. Can <laughs> anyone there help? Uh, to which they replied, "I got you, brother." <laughs> so, uh, if you are thinking of going to Witty on the dining stage in 2017, uh, you know who to contact on Twitter. But I, I presume it's just the person trying to take your money when you land. That t- rest assured, that is Tig Furlong's blood relatives. I think I'd like to visit, but I might wait until the weather picks up. It does. Whitty Island at Christmas time sounds to me, or it could be a little. Uh, April could be dump. lovely. Well, no, it's certainly not a dump. <laughs> it's not a dump. It's a dump. No, it's not a dump. Who is that again? Shane Curran. Shane Curran. Absolute yeah. opposite of a dump. It's a beautiful, no. beautiful part it? of the Where world. Where was he talking about? When he I talking? think it was the Gaelic rounds in Limerick, but I'm not, not entirely sure. It's, uh, yeah. Either way, Woody Island, a hell of a place to visit. Not for Owen in January, maybe in April. I hope you enjoyed our Stephen's Day show. We will leave you with that. You can enjoy the rest of your Christmas now without us until we return on the 28th of December. That'll be a football podcast. We'll let you catch up on all the festive football. 
Ken will have been Ken has been watching will continue to watch I'll forget about this idea that we're talking in the future about like the past I don't back know Back to the future is very very confusing Look all you need to know is podcast Wednesday 28 football Grant done Thanks Ken Thank you Owen Thanks Murph Thank you Owen Thank you Kenny Thank you, Thanks for listening Take care That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.